science. Um, who is not a thorn in my side, of course, completely the opposite, is Hannah Beswick. <laughs> <laughs> do you like, do you like that link? Um, and um, uh, she's uh, joined me. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Hey. It's very good, to, as always, to have you uh, in the studio. And um, I, I thought the show last week was brilliant. I mean, I wasn't on it, so I can say that with uh, uh, great... Um, Thank uh, you. Sincerity. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with yes. uh, with Andrew and Maddie. Yeah. They're really nice. Yeah, it was great. Very, very nice listen. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't be with you. And Andrew can't be with us this week. So, uh, uh, and any rumours of a feud between us are yeah. completely overrated. <laughs> we don't he, hate each other very much at all. No, Andrew can't be with us this week, but hopefully he'll be uh, with us uh, next week. So we say very best wishes to him. And um, we are going to... Uh, take you through the show, uh, chatting about science in the news and science behind the news as usual. And uh, we're going to kick off. Uh, well, the first thing I want to know is you, because I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been you've a been away now. Yeah, you've been away on holiday. Yes, rather exotically, <laughs> you've been in uh, in Italy. Yeah, Na- Napoli was. Uh, it? No, we stayed we stayed in uh, Sorrento. Sorrento, right? Yes, yeah, so that was that was, was really that like? nice. Yeah, it was lovely. I really like Sorrento. I actually really really needed the sunshine. Like I think maybe my vitamin D was getting a bit low, and I just went and lay in the sun. It was really great. But um, we visited Pompeii and Herculaneum. Ah. We climbed Vesuvius. Ah, did you? And yeah, that was really nice. And my younger brother's a geologist, ah, so he well, was he having was in a great heaven. time. Yeah, he was really into the rocks. Yeah, yeah, how amazing. <laughs> I I um I understand that when uh, Ves- Vesuvius famously, of course, it exploded, yeah, uh, and um, destroyed Pompeii mm-hmm. and so on, that um, the knowledge that this actually was a volcano had been lost, and people yes. people did not know what it was. No, they didn't. And they didn't think it was a volcano. Yeah, I yeah. think it was a much bigger mountain at the time. Yeah, it was about. I want to say like twice the height or something like that. It was it was about three thousand feet, I think. Really, in much bigger. So the top um, was blown off. Yeah, it was absolutely blown off. And I think they said it hadn't exploded, hadn't erupted for like one thousand eight hundred years. I think yeah. previously they think yeah. anyway. Um, so whatever so was, was lost, shock. if. Uh, uh, in 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 mythology, yeah. if if people actually had any record, if human culture had been able to transfer that at all, yeah, and um, uh, apparently the signs were you know poisoning of w- water wells and things like that, yeah, and some some earthquakes as well, some tremors, yeah. yeah. Uh, but because it hadn't ex- hadn't erupted in such a long time, it meant that it was such a devastating eruption that one time. You, what you really want for a volcano is it for it to have very small eruptions like every few years. Yes, just to um, remind people. Like a people. really slow seeping yeah. out of lava like you have in Hawaii. Yeah. That's when you know that like the pressure's kept down because it's regularly letting off some steam. Yes. It doesn't get too bad. Well, of course, we're very interested at the moment in volcanoes because it, Italy has had its fair share of uh, volcanic activity really quite recently. Oh, yeah? Uh, and, uh, yeah. And uh, in Mexico, of course... Oh uh, yeah, there's, there's been these devastating earthquakes where 
uh, tragically, uh, a great many people have, have been killed, um, and buildings fallen down, uh, thousands of people left 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 homeless. And of course, one of the things about about um, earthquake activity, which is related in some quite often to volcanic activity, um, is you can't predict when it's going to happen. They no, cannot, they can, not, not precisely, yeah. Well, they can say apparently probably where it's going to happen because they yeah. know where all the, the stress goes from one place to and Then there's a, an earthquake, then it goes to another mm. place and another place. And um, uh, you can say, well, when there's an earthquake... It will probably happen here. Yeah. When I think, is just not known. I think. Yeah, I think they can say like that's a high probability. Yeah. But um, there's, I think, volcanologists. Yes. Get quite. Uh, they've had some bad, um, bad press because you know sometimes they say, well, you know, it's it's pretty likely, so they're not taken seriously. An area hasn't been evacuated, and then there has been an eruption yes. or things like that have happened before. Um, but it's. Because of, like you said, like you know, it's it's quite hard to predict these things. Like, you can always just, you can only ever just say like, there's a very high probability. You can't say like, yes, it will erupt at seven twenty-two uh, next yes. Tuesday. So yes. better get everyone out of there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and what I find amazing about these places is, well, I don't know if this is true. I've, I've never been to uh, Sorrento. Oh, okay. I've never been to Vesuvius, um, and so on. But um, uh, people. Build, don't they, on the side? Yes. There's, so there's, there's lots of building there's goes on. Apparently, more people living within a dangerous vicinity of Vesuvius than in the vicinity of any other volcano in the world. Wow. People live really, really close to the edge. It used to erupt like every seven years yeah. until there was an eruption in 1944, and it hasn't erupted since. So they're getting quite worried about how yeah. long that's been. Yeah. Yeah, especially uh, with so many people so close. But it is strange, isn't it, that you don't? Well, I'll just build my house on the side of this. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, a long-term lease, mm. you know, might not make a lot of sense. Exactly. But there you go. People have to live somewhere. So yeah, and it's super, it super fertile around that area as of well. Course, really good for growing grapes, of course, grapes and things. Yeah, because of the the volcanic ash. Amazing. Well, good. Oh, I'm glad you had a holiday. Yeah, And a thank good you. chance to talk about <laughs> earthquakes, which is always always very, very interesting yeah. uh, to me. And um, we need to go to uh, what is something which is related to geological stuff, which is um, an Antarctica. There is an enormous... Uh, oh, excuse me. I've just managed to make my chair fall onto the ground. Um, uh, there, is, <laughs> there is an enormous uh, iceberg, which is known as... Uh, a68. Yeah, A68. It's about 6,000 6, square kilometres, yeah. which uh, is, is huge. It's enormous. 6,000 square kilometres is enormous. Mm, that's and, four um, times the area of Greater London. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's broken off uh, of the uh, uh, ice shelf, and uh, so from the, what's called the Larsen Ice Shelf, huge crack uh, has appeared, and the thing is now on its own, floating on the ocean. Um, and um, it's decided uh, to start moving. So uh, being Antarctica, it has to move north because there's nowhere else to go. Yes. <laughs> that's the only direction. Yeah, all that's south is ice and Yeah, everything uh, south is just... Because uh, it's, yeah. it's sort of been... The way it's been swinging out, it's, it's sort of stayed relatively quite attached at one end. So just like one, one side of it has been swinging out away from the rest of the landmass. Um, and it's going to go off into the Weddell Sea, if that means anything. I didn't know where that was until I read this. Yeah. 
Um, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, one thing I did find quite interesting is the use of the word carved. Yes. So when the when the iceberg yes. breaks off and becomes born, as it were, they yes. use the word carved. Yes, for like a whale. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I was yeah. thinking cows. Whales is much more. Yeah. Much more apt. <laughs> I yeah. guess it's in the sea. Yeah. It's uh, yes, exactly. I, I I like I like their language. Um, it says when a sixty-eight. Uh, I wish they give it. They they really should give this monster a proper name. I think maybe we should name it for them. Uh, when a sixty-eight moves clear of its birth birth position it will reveal seafloor that probably has not been free of ice cover for 120,000 years. Yeah. That's going to be very, very interesting. I mean, this is actually a tragedy. Yes. Uh, we, we, should, we should just say, when we have bits of the Antarctic breaking off and moving away, it's a potential tragedy anyway that, uh, y- you know, that... Um, uh, global warming, uh, or, or, or let's say, sorry, give it its proper title, climate change that has mm. led to this, um, yeah. uh, it could be disastrous, and we'll 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 we'll, we'll see um, how how it goes. It could be evidence of, of disastrous activity, but it will also be interesting geologically, biologically, uh, when people begin to uh, have a look at what's left behind. Um, One hundred and twenty thousand years ago was the peak of the last warm phase in the Earth's history, uh, and that's yeah, yeah the last time that piece of ocean will have seen the, yeah. the bottom of it will have seen light yeah so that's known as the Eemian period apparently mm. and um it will be extremely interesting for uh scientists to have a look at that and see yeah. see what that reveals we'll, we'll learn something about our planet yeah they've managed to secure um sort of protection from the commission of conservation of antarctic marine living resources which is a very long uh, title to make sure that scientists get priority over fisheries and things like that to go and um sort of move into the area and do research because the last time something like this happened they started they found some new species in the area that hadn't been uncovered for so long so that it should, could be really interesting in that respect as well for science fiction fans of course this you know this is perfect territory isn't it you yeah. know this is this is where monsters come from and everything i'm not saying they do by yeah. the way i'm just saying is that, i'm pretty sure that is is the plot of a b movie i think it's like <laughs> shark probably lots of b movies oh, is it mega shark versus giant octopus one of them's like a huge crack in the ice forms and a massive shark comes out from like the ice <laughs> age and reanimates and causes oh. causes all sort of <laughs> shenanigans well there you go well look um we'll uh, we'll we'll come back to this in a minute i should i should just say by the way in honor of andrew glester who's yes. not here um, we were talking about Vulcans earlier on. Oh, yeah. Or volcanoes. Yep. I'm thinking Vulcans. Spot, Star Trek. Star Trek. <laughs> and, of course, there is today, those of you who use Netflix, uh, apparently is released uh, a new, a brand new series of Star Trek. Brand new series? A brand new series. A whole new Star Trek is it Netflix? series. Is it a Netflix series? Um, I am not sure. <laughs> uh, and um, you're listening to Love and Science. Uh, on 93.2 uh, FM or, of course, on uh, bcfmradio.com uh, uh, if you're listening on the interweb. And, of course, you could be anywhere. So welcome to you wherever you are. Um, we've got an hour of uh, science chat and science news, or we're in the middle of it right now. And uh, I'm joined, of course, by, uh, as often I am, by Hannah uh, Beswick. So uh, where are we at now? I think what we should do is talk about uh, there's 
Paris to talk about. Apparently, um, the, uh, the, the, there's a, a study that says that the Paris Agreement uh, or the, uh, the challenges of reaching the, reaching the uh, uh, Paris Agreement are achievable. So everybody's very, very worried because, of course, the Americans, uh, Donald Trump, has been saying that uh, they're pulling out of the, yeah. of the Paris Accord. And um, uh, this might like difficult. Then they're saying, well, maybe they will uh, be able to sort of play along with it, but it's not entirely clear yeah, what's coming out. Yeah, it's been a bit confusing, really, hasn't yes. it? It's, it sounds That's a like... huge surprise, confusing messages coming out of the Trump White yeah. House. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, we shouldn't laugh because it is confusing. <laughs> well, we shouldn't um, laugh because it's, it's true and it's, sad. Yeah. But uh, yes, so the 20, this is the story of the, the 2015 Paris Agreement's ambitious goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, does remain within reach. And uh, it's a, a study published in Nature Geoscience uh, very recently. And uh, it's basically saying, well, um, it can be done. Yeah. But it isn't going to be it's, easy. It's going to be hard. And they're saying that we, what we would need to do is decrease our emissions in a straight line over the next 40 years down to zero in 40 years in order to achieve the goal, which is to limit climate change to one degree, 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. So right. that's, that's the limit that we want to keep to. So, um, so when we go to... In 40 years' time, that's zero carbon dioxide emissions from from my in, understanding. Industrial sources. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a that's a huge ask, isn't it's, it? It's it's huge. I was talking to someone about this the other day, and they they were saying that because even even once we do reduce our emissions down to zero, there will still continue to be some changes to the climate because we've already done so much damage. So we want to reduce our emissions anyway and then we can start working on things like carbon capture and um, taking things back from the atmosphere to, that cause like the greenhouse effect from yes. the excess uh, gases in the um, ozone. Uh, the study says that pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees centigrade is not chasing a geophysical impossibility. In other words, they're saying it can be done. Uh, there's... Um, uh, one of the co-authors of the of the report is actually from University College London in uh, uh, in London, in London. <laughs> uh, Michael Grubb, and he says that uh, this paper shows that the Paris goals are within reach, but clarifies the commitment to pursue efforts to limit temperature uh, increase to 1.5 degrees C c centigrade. Really, it really implies uh, well some hard work. Um, those commitments would require strengthening the nationally determined contributions and the pledges to cut emissions contained in the Paris Agreement. So in other words, we really do have to do in that agreement what we said we would do. Um, it, it's, it's kind of interesting little uh, report, this, because it's, it's basically reminding everybody that um, uh, even, even though there's this sense that, wow, you know, we're, we're on fighting a losing battle mm -hmm. it can be done if we have the will to yeah do it. and also you know even though it feels difficult and overwhelming and also there's a lot going on in the world at the moment we are still fighting for these goals um it's still incredibly important for us to reduce those emissions to limit the amount of changes that we see uh, are you somebody who feels i mean how do you feel about this are, is it are, are you kind of 
resigned, well, there's not a lot I can just do what I can do and you know, I hope the politicians sort it out. Or are you optimistic about I, it? I'm quite optimistic. I feel like so long as we um, adopt the wonderful, like the amazing technologies that we can use to help reduce the emissions, so long as we're not scared about, you know, uh, renewable power and things like that, and a lot of people do have reservations, so long as we accept that this is what we're going to have to do is change the way we live, then I think we will ma will manage it. I think a lot of people are quite scared of, ch of changing their lifestyles, and that's why a lot of people do find it difficult. Um, I mean, there are, of course, times when I feel a certain amount of uh, dread about the way, <laughs> the way the world's going, but I try to allay those feels, fears. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think it's important to be both a, a realist uh, and as optimistic as you possibly can be, and that's sometimes a hard uh, thing to... Uh, uh, it's hard to it's a bring hard those balance. two things together. <laughs> it really is. Well, look, um, a, a, a while ago, um, I was working uh, in Northern Ireland at uh, their uh, science festival uh, in Belfast, and uh, I came across somebody called uh, Sue McGrath, and um, after we'd uh, done some work to, to, together, I interviewed her. She's a really fascinating person uh, who has had um, uh, a long commitment to uh, science communication and I just thought I'd ask her um, about her ethos and her approach to it. So, so here we are sitting on the stage at the Black Box in Belfast after we've done our, well, our own little show this morning, a training event. How are you feeling? I'm feeling actually quite good. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure how we were going to cope with so many in such a short period of time, but all the faces that have just left, they're all very positive. And, uh, yeah. I know, it's a good feeling for a trainer, isn't it? But look, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in your background because this is a stage that you have played quite often yourself. Just give us a quick idea of what your shows are all about. So I'm a storyteller, but using the skills of a storyteller to try to make science accessible. I'm not going to say science is fun, but what I'm trying to do is to make that topic as engaging and as emotional as possible. Now, you're really well known in Ireland. You, you, you travel. Well, you're a star. And I say to people, I'm working with Sue McGrath. They go, wow, you're, you're very, very lucky. So how did you get into this? What, so how, what brought you into doing science shows? Primarily, when I was teaching, I was also going on lots of drama courses because of, we were organizing the school play. And then, without me realizing, I started to bring a lot of the techniques that I was using in drama uh, and getting my classes to do the school plays in, into the classroom. And then in 2000, with the Millennium, we had lots of science centers built. So we have one built here in Northern Ireland, Who, What, When, and Why, W5. And I was the very first employee for that one there. So that... Uh, allowed me then to go to the States and Canada to kind of get a, a different type of training in terms of the informal uh, education. And then over the last 15 years, it has just been developing different styles and techniques to allow a lot more people to understand the science. What, what is it that, dri that drives you? Obviously, you enjoy performing because you do that very well. What else? I think I just love learning. And, and I love 
For me, it's a challenge to get everyone in the room involved. For me, you know, if I see somebody that's that's not smiling or is not being engaged or is talking to someone else or is sitting marking their books at the side, all of a sudden my, my challenge is to, to bring them in and capture them in. I, I'm so lucky that every day I wake up, you know, I, I just am so excited about the day starting and the challenges that I've got ahead. And they're not all good challenges, you know, that there are some which uh, are problematic, but I know at the end of the day, you know, it, it's it's just a, a really good positive path that I'm on. Now you've had to become like a, a maker and an inventor as well. If you've, if you've got an idea, my premise is um, until I can actually go out and, and demonstrate physically or what, what's happening, I, I tend not to go out to do it. So Ireland, like, like everywhere else, has, has been struggling with recession. Uh, that seems to be passing quite a bit. Is that, has that had an impact on your work? It hasn't really. Southern Ireland, their, their government is just amazing. And over the last 10 years, a phenomenal amount of funding has gone into science and technology. Here in Northern Ireland, uh, the struggle has been the fact that they changed the curriculum. And that instead of having science as a subject on its own, it became the world around us. And a lot of teachers chose to do history and geography. There was no examination in science. And so those that had a fear of science have just not been doing it. Now, thank Thankfully, over the last couple of years, because of a report has highlighted the fact a lot of our children are going seven years in school with no science. Um, that's, that now is making the primary schools look back at science. So just this year, I'm starting to be booked for shows in school, in primary schools, which I haven't for a long time. Well, the room that we're sitting in now is, is uh, almost empty. It's all cleared up. We had, a, we had a good morning, as we said, but you've got no rest, have you? You've got to do something else later oh, tonight. Oh, yes, we have the Late Lab, Late Lab 2. So the Ulster Museum is being turned into one big party zone. So it's lots of psychedelic music and uh, glow-in-the-dark stuff, and they've got uh, fire dancers. Uh, but in the lecture theatre, I'm going to be doing uh, my shows, but adults only. So a little bit blue, uh, tongue-in-cheek, tongue uh, double entendres and is this all part of the uh, science festival it is so the whole science festival we've got 11 days over 100 activities um, so I think last year it was phenomenal this year I think it's just going from strength to strength and you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM with me Malcolm Love and Hannah Bestwick and um, we, there's, a, there's a really uh, nice story here this, this isn't um, super new at all uh, but um, uh, it's just uh, what should we say uh, tr trumpeting the uh, benefits of exercise and um, so it, sa it says this one in 12 deaths could be prevented with 30 minutes of physical activity five days a week that's not that much, is it? That's pretty good as well, because you don't have to do anything on your weekend. So <laughs> it's just, yes. you could incorporate it into your working day. Yeah, because you see people pounding around, you know, running around the streets, you know, and in yeah. all the gear, and you think, oh, no, I, could, I just couldn't do that. But um, that's, they're not talking about that, that kind of, a, of activity. Um, the conclusion comes from the world's largest study of physical activity which analyzed data from more than 130,000 people across 17 countries and um, 
the uh, study uh, in the study participants provided information about things like their income and uh, their lifestyle and their medical history and all those kinds of things that are filled out uh, questionnaires. They talked about the kind of activity they have in a typical week and participants were followed up at least every three years to record information about um, any diseases to do with their heart, cardiovascular disease and so on and uh, to find out information about deaths. For about seven years, the follow-up uh, continued. Um, and Scott Lear from McMaster University in Canada and his colleagues found that 150 minutes of activity a week reduced the risk of death from any cause by 28%. So that's getting on for a third, between a third yeah. and a quarter. That's a good And good rates amount. of heart disease by a fifth. That's pretty impressive. Um, did you see this story yourself? Yeah, I, I liked it, actually, because I, I'm really bad for exercise. Like, I, I think I procra procrastinate, but I, getting myself to the gym is just nothing I can do. I can't run because it hurts. So the idea that I can just, you know, what I'm, what I'm actually doing, which is power walking to work every day because I'm late yes. and power walking back because I really want to go home, is actually doing just as much as I need it to. <laughs> uh, it's quite rewarding to know that. It's all right. I'm doing okay. <laughs> you are you are doing okay, and and um, uh, of course, the older you get, though, the more necessary it is to uh, to just to watch it up. and not let it slip because mm. uh, it can get worse. There is an uh, amazing program on the BBC. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm just busy checking here what it's called. It's called How to Stay Young. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> they do this dreadful thing. This is fantastic yeah. television okay. because basically what, what, what you do is you do a, um, a kind of a, a test. They'll, they'll, they'll do physical tests. So you might have to blow into a tube or something. And it oh, yeah. measures how much Classic. you blow. And it measures the fat in your body, all kinds of things. And then you have to stand in front of this big board where all the results come up. And they tell you, so you might be, say, 50 mm -hmm. years old and then... Uh, um, a, num a number in red will start to climb and show you what the age, the actual age of your body is in physical terms. Okay. So if you just measure it, so, so someone goes up there and says, yeah, I'm 51. Yeah, I'm probably not that fit. You know, I, I guess my body age is going to be, you know, 55 or, you know, maybe at the worst 60. There's some poor soul on there the other day whose body age, I think they were 51 or something, and their body age was 90. <gasps> so they look pretty shocked. Well, yeah, but what were, they, what were they doing wrong? <laughs> Wasn't doing well, his 30 what, minutes a what day. What they were doing wrong was nothing. Mm. In other words, they weren't doing anything at all. Yeah, but um, were they also like smoking, drinking every day, all these sorts of things, or was it just that he wasn't... Um, exercising well I think they do of course they do have people on there who smoke I don't mm. think this person was they were just incredibly inactive yeah. and one of the shocking things was for me was that I'm um, well I, I'm, I'm not uh, an incredibly I mean I'm a tall guy but I'm, I, you know, I don't look at myself and think oh my goodness you know you're seriously overweight but actually um, A of course I could lose a bit of weight there's no doubt about that uh, I'm, I'm not claiming to be um, a trim uh, but it is, of course, possible to not look like you're seriously overweight, but actually have a lot of fat content yeah. in your body. If you don't have much muscle as well. Yeah. Um, you can also look very slim and like in good shape, but not live a very healthy lifestyle, like just eating bad foods or smoking and drinking yeah. still, but still be skinny. And yes. that doesn't mean that you're 
No. Any any fitter still just because just the way skinny. you look yeah. doesn't say a great deal. It can be deal. very very deceiving. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at really, you know, trim looking people, you just get nah. We you know, we don't. We don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't buy it. <laughs> we, I don't buy it. You have to prove it to me, you know. Yeah. Um, what I want, uh, looking at this program, I do wonder uh, whether it's possible to have an age, a body age is actually younger than the one that you have. I guess it must be. I think, I think it must be possible. I think it must be much harder when you're younger to have that, Yeah. of course. Um, but I think the older you get, you can have, I'm, pr- I'm fairly certain you could have a body age of younger yeah. than what you actually were if you were in incredibly good shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of, the, one of the nice things about this report is the results showed that it was not necessary to run swim or work out at the gym household chores such as vacuuming or scrubbing the floor or merely walking to work provided enough exercise to protect the heart and to extend life yeah so So you can just or like taking the stairs instead of taking the lift and things like that these are all just as good if you do them for enough enough time yeah these are great little tips aren't Mm. they you know if you go look this is up on the third floor uh, of course, I'll get the lift. And they no, wait a minute, I'll walk up. Yeah. Just that simple choice on a regular basis is going to make a huge difference. Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't actually take any longer to go up the stairs than the lift where I work. So I always, ha- I, can't, I can't even justify it as that <laughs> for myself. So it ju- it's actually quicker for me to go up the stairs. So I have to do that. The World, the World Health Organization recommend that adults aged 18 to 64 do at least 150 minutes of moderate physical exercise throughout the week. Well, that's, that's less not than three bad. hours. Yeah. That's less than three hours. That's half an hour a day. As well as 15 minutes. As well as muscle strengthening exercises at least two days a week. So I guess um, uh, you have to think about that a bit, how to, strength, how to strengthen your muscles. You told me you're a climber. Yeah, yeah, I, I rock climb. Um, I've just joined the Climbing Academy because that's the closest one to where I work. Mm. I really enjoy it, actually. I like going about once a week. It's good yeah. for your muscles. And you surprise people at work by climbing in through yeah. the window. And just climbing <laughs> over them and it's like <laughs> to get to the front of the queue. <laughs> um, yeah, but like 15 minutes to make that much difference, uh, sorry, 150 minutes to make that much difference to your health, it's, it's actually really, it's really achievable looking at it from this as well and what they're suggesting you do. Um, I, I have a particular beef about uh, exercise in the sense that um, I mean I, I, I oh yeah? I've done my uh, my exercise regimes and uh, uh, you know from time to time I'm more enthusiastic than uh, than other times mm-hmm. I must admit I'm not in a very good exercise uh, zone at the moment but um, the the beef that I have about things like gymnasia gymnasia do you do you like that it sounds like <laughs> Almost, yes, Gym, let's call it gymnasiums. Okay. Far less, yep. far less pretentious. Um, is is that uh, you know going going to the gym or other kind of workout classes and things like that? Um, is it, it seems to me to be odd that we have lifestyles where we have to go to special places to do it. Yeah. There are places in the world uh, where people regularly live over a hundred years of age and in good health. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out to be diet and that built into their lifestyle is a reasonable amount of exercise. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it has like, I think one of the keys is that it's, if you build it into you just the way you, like, if you build your exercise into just your day to day life, it becomes really habit forming. Like you just tend to do things like take the stairs more regularly and you tend to um, exercise as and when you can. I think one thing I hear a lot from my friends that actually do go to the gym is that, 
if they miss a week or miss a day, it's really easy to continue missing it because it's not actually, it's like they have to go out of their way to go and do exercise. And so as soon as they start missing it, it's like they get extra time to themselves yeah. though when they're not exercising. So it's actually, it's, it's really easy to get out of that habit if it's something outside of your normal yeah. day-to-day living. So remember, you don't have to do much. Just do some, maybe half an hour, five days a week and the effects could be amazing. And um, you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2, to be precise, or you may be listening uh, on uh, BCFM uh, radio.com. Either way, it's always great to have your company. Well, we're racing towards the uh, end of the program, and uh, we've got another piece of science news, which uh, may not sound uh, so exciting, but... um, it is. <laughs> uh, because so believe us. <laughs> so we have to believe us. Uh, ambitious neuroscience project. This is, uh, uh, this is from the um, Guardian. Uh, we picked this up from the Guardian. Ambitious neuroscience project to probe how the brain makes decisions. And apparently uh, there are 21 labs in Europe and the United States uh, all working on uh, from the uh, international uh, brain uh, or associated with the International Brain Laboratory, uh, uh, taking all of the, or all of the research that comes from these laboratories, they're going to try and answer one of the big mysteries of all time, which is how do we decide to do things? And um, uh, the world-leading neuroscientists have launched this ambitious project uh, to answer that question: How does the brain uh, decide what to do? And um, there are people working all over the world, Europe, United States, other places, working on this. And they're getting slightly different results. Uh, And the idea is that if they can take all of this data, look at how they're all working together, then they'll be able to correct some of these small differences, figure out why you get different results at different times. Yeah, so they, they, it's, this is a similar thing to what they do um, at CERN, where they have the Large Hadron Collider, is that they share all their findings with different labs. So this particular one is um, it's through like the Wellcome Trust and the Simons Foundation. They've gained some money to put together, like you mentioned, the International Brain Lab. lab- Laboratory, laboratory. Yes, yes. Um, which is just means that they're going to co- uh, coordinate all their research together. Half of the teams are going to be doing actual research. Half are going to be looking at sort of th- theoretical models about how we make decisions, what ha- where information is taken in and like assessed, and where the decision decision essentially comes out at the other end. Um, one of the issues is that they, if if two labs do the same experiment, they might get different results because of small differences in like who's doing the experiments, how they're running the experiments, like how they look at the, deta- the, the data afterwards, it can come out differently. So what they're trying to do instead is all work together on the same essentially big pot of research and information to, colla- uh, to sort of bring all their findings in line to actually start to make some progress on this sort of um, decision making. Uh, one of the researchers, somebody called Anne Churchland, she says, uh, it happens all the time that we read a paper that gets different results from us and we won't know if it's for deep scientific reasons. In other words, the methods they've pursued are uh, different or whatever, the assumptions mm. they've made are different, the instruments they're using are different, um, or because there, there are small differences in the way the science is carried out. 
and um, the uh, uh, Anne Churchland, who's a neuroscientist involved in the project at Cold Spring Harbour Lab in New York. I love the titles of these places, <laughs> it sounds so exotic. Um, uh, she says that at the moment, each lab has its own way of uh, doing things. And so we're just trying to figure out what, what, what the difference is. Uh, uh, she, she quotes a proverb. She says, ultimately, the reason it's worth addressing this is in the proverb, alone we go fast, together we go far. And uh, as you said, it's great when scientists collaborate, like with the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, they can make uh, huge strides. Yeah, and, really impressive. Uh, um, yeah sort of strides forwards it's it's interesting because I, I remember reading something many years ago about how if you're given like a really easy decision like choose one of two things yeah um your brain makes the decision before you even consciously actually know what yes. you're gonna do so if yes. you says like choose the queen of hearts or the queen of spades yes um your brain is already showing that it's it knows what it's going to do before you then think gonna go for the yes. queen of hearts like it's yes. already done long before, before consciously yes before you've consciously said uh, there's an I, I remember a, a study um uh, some years ago where somebody was was saying that um uh, if you're asked to pick something up mm. before you make the say you say you get you know pick that one up or that one up before you you um even move the decision has been made. You can actually see in the brain. Yeah. Um, it's already working out, it's, mapping it's, out it's, how it's, to it's do it. It's already decided to do it. So figuring out, this is all part of um, what neuroscientists called the hard problem in science, which is uh, understanding consciousness and how yeah. we, how we uh, do that. Now, look, I've got um, just time for one last story, which I think you will like, uh, which is... Uh, not actually uh, on our list of stories that we had uh, uh, we, we had in the show today, but I just want to tuck it in at the yeah, end. Yeah, I'm excited. Yes, yes. Um, uh, have you ever heard of the canine obesity crisis? Um, I've heard of canine obesity, but I was not aware it was a crisis. It's a crisis, apparently. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, this is a BBC story, and uh, <laughs> basically it's saying, could a genetic mutation explain why some dogs have an insatiable appetite? <gasps> I think and, I've heard uh, that like uh, some breeds cannot stop eating. That's right. So yeah. like Labradors. So you can blame the owners. Okay. Uh, obesity is a serious issue uh, for uh, dogs. Well, apparently some kind of genetic reason yeah. uh, why, why that, that is the case. And so we will have to talk about that another time. Okay. But I thought, I thought you would like to, uh, to, know, to know that. To know that. I yeah. feel slightly sad that there's so many obese out there. But... Yeah. Um, Maybe, maybe okay. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> anyway, it's great because we've got John Ford talking hey. about. We've been talking about brains, John. Hello. Brain science, and you walk in the room. Well, it's, it's an o- it's it's a note. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Number five. You. One yeah. says number five on it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you are. Well, yeah. sorry, yeah. I'm late. I'm well, sorry, no, don't just, worry about that the, at all. Our boss, Pat, collared me outside, so I was. Well, it's him, isn't it? Kneel before him and. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's. No, that, that <laughs> sounds very disturbing. Afraid. Yes. Well, it's it, it, um, uh, very quickly. Anything we what, anything we left out this I'll week? I'll give you one. The world's largest telescope at 500 meters wide um, in Gua, I can't pronounce it, Gishou in China, in province in China, uh, began operating today in 2016. Just Good. last year. 
grief. Well, I'm going to sleep easy in my bed knowing good. that. Thank you for sharing it. We have to say uh, a goodbye from us. So it's a goodbye from me and from Hannah. Uh, it's been great uh, being with you, of course. Have yourselves a very good evening. Don't forget to stay tuned because after the news, the very John Ford, whom you just heard, is going to be getting Bristol home. See you again next week. Love and science. Thank you.